KUOZ 100.5 is an FCC-licensed radio station operated by the University of the Ozarks, Clarksville, Arkansas. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to From the Concert Hall with your hosts Corbin Sturch and Zachary Payne. Your vintage radio program here on KUOZ 100.5 FM. Community radio produced by the Radio Television Video Department here at University of the Ozarks in Clarksville, Arkansas. From the Concert Hall plays some of the famous artists of the past, as well as features a few of our very own from right here at home. So sit back, relax, and enjoy as we take you live right here to our very own Little Concert Hall. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Sturch. To start us off this week, I'd like to start by thanking all of our listeners out there. With our five-and-a-half-week report coming in here at the university, we decided we'd give our listeners one of their very own with a few of our numbers that we've looked at today. Whenever I met with our director of marketing earlier, I can just say thank you to all of our listeners and viewers. Thanks to you, we have actively reached seven states, four countries, and seven different languages. But in total, we've been heard in seven states, ten countries, and seven different languages now. Most recently adding the UK to our list. So thank you to everyone out there for that. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. Now, a few things to get out of the way before we get the show started. There will be a pancake breakfast hosted by the Clarksville Lions Club Tuesday, March 31st at the Clarksville United Methodist Church. They will start serving at 6.30 in the morning and go until 12.30 in the afternoon. Right now, the cost is $5 per person, or for children 12 and under, it's 3 This is all you can eat. Now, if you want to have a big order and bring, say, maybe six or more things of pancakes back, they'll deliver. The number to call is 479-979-2260. Again, that is 479-979-2260. So for all you listening out there at the dorms, Tuesday, the 31st, if you don't want to get up and go to the calf, if you and the friends can get together, about six orders, they'll bring it to you. It's just like Pizza Hut. <laughs> Another hat and an event in the campus this week. Breach, Log 15 by Courtney Leonard is showing in the art gallery. It opened last night with a waste lecture tonight by the artist Seven. The exhibit will be in town till March 20th in the Stevens Gallery. For more information, you can get a hold of Don or, or Tammy in the art department, and I'm sure they'll be more than happy to talk with you about it. Also happening this week is a lecture by the Reverend Dr. Jack Haber, with whom he's actually with us in the studio tonight. Dr. Haber, can you tell us a bit about your lecture that's going to be happening later in the week? Thank you for asking. Um, Great to be with you, Corbin and Zach. This uh, lecture will be on Thursday night. It is titled, What's So Great About Being Good? Based upon a book that I'm writing by that title, subtitle is How Jesus' Followers Discern God's Will and how you can too. The basic thesis of the book and the reason for being here to share it is that it's a different take on understanding Christian ethics. I'm one of those guys that really believes the Bible is God's word. I really take that seriously, but I also take it seriously enough to read the parts of the Bible I don't like along with the ones that I do like, the ones that don't make sense to me as well as those that do make sense to me, and that I find that the more I get serious about what the Bible actually says, the more complicated my ethics get. They're not simple, just 10 absolute commandments. Those commandments aren't taken as absolutes even in the Bible. Each of of those commandments has some room for negotiation, adjustment, uh, approximation, adaptation. And um, that when we take the Bible seriously, particularly and interpret the Bible the way the Bible writers themselves interpret other parts of the Bible, we end up finding that the Bible is far richer, far more interesting. It certainly is instructive and um, informative. It guides us. 
It gives us um, benchmarks and standards and aspirations to which to reach for, but it also leaves a lot of room for approximation and adaptation. And I'm going to be unpacking that somewhat with you all in uh, the lecture on Thursday night. Right. For those of you who missed it, that'll be Thursday night at 7 in Baldor Auditorium, I believe. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And Business Right, right in the business building. And if you can't make it to the lecture, you can tune in Thursday night at 9 for our show. The Reverend Haber will be back to continue his Waste Lecture and talk with you here on our show, give you a chance to call in, ask questions, really stretch his topic. That's right. I love questions. You can work me over, if you will. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Haber. It was great having you on the show tonight, and we look forward to having you back on Thursday. Thanks. Look forward to it. So, Zach, would you like to introduce the topic this week? Absolutely. Um, tonight we'll actually be going over the uh, opera La Orfeo. Um, it's sometimes called La Forva de Orfeo. Um, that's actually uh, the full title of it inside French. A lot of times whenever there's a la and then it ends with a de and then the word, they'll just put it together in La Orfeo you get. Um, it's a late Renaissance, early Baroque favola in musica, which is an opera uh, by Claudio Monteverdi. Uh, with a libretto by Alessandro Stigio. It is based on the Greek legend of Orpheus and tells the story of his descent into Hades and his fruitless attempts to bring his dead bride, Eurydice, back to the living world. It is written in 1607 for a court performance during the annual uh, carnival at Mantua. While the honor of the first opera goes to Jacopo Perei, uh, the fiend, and the earliest surviving opera is Eurydice, also by Perei, uh, La Orfeo is on, is, has the honor of being the earliest surviving opera that is still regularly performed today. Right. And during the 17th century, the traditional intermedio, a musical sequence between the acts of a straight play, was evolved into a form of a complete musical drama, or opera. Monte Verdi's El Orfeo moved this process out of its experimental era and actually provided the first fully developed example of the new genre. After its initial performance, the work was staged again in Mantua and possibly in other Italian centers over the next few years. Its score was published by Monteverdi in 1609 and again in 1615 after the composer's death in oh sorry after the composer's death in 1643. The opera went unperformed for many years and was largely forgotten until a revival of the interest in the late 19th century led to the state of modern editions and performances. At first, these tended to be unstaged versions within institutes and musical societies, but after the first modern dramatized performance in Paris in 1911, the work began to be seen increasingly often in theaters. After the Second World War, most new editions sought authenticity through the use of period instruments. Many recordings were issued of this opera, and the opera was increasingly staged in opera houses. In 2007, the quarter century of the premiere was celebrated by performances throughout the world. You know, that almost seems like a common theme for operas to be performed and then after the death forgotten about and then brought back in the 19th or 18th century. Doesn't I mean, it, though? Yeah, like the Nutcracker was one of those, and that seems like such a great play opera today, but, I mean, inside its time, it completely flopped besides some music. Right. Something I find interesting, or that our listeners might find interesting about the recording tonight this actually comes from the first recording of the opera. We uh, ha- we found a record that is a copy of the original recording from 1939. That's that's pretty old. And that was the first time this opera was ever recorded. Mm-hmm. So what our listeners are going to be hearing tonight is that first recording. What, what was that first recording done on? Did you say beeswax earlier? Yeah, I th- I do believe that would have been a beeswax roll because LPs didn't come out until a bit later, I don't believe. So this would have been on a beeswax roll, then an LP, and then now to late earlier this week, we took that LP and turned it digital. <laughs> <laughs> so this thing has been through three transformations at least. Well, it's, uh, it's seen its time, that's for sure. Right. Zach, do you want to tell us a bit about Act 1, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight? Um, Absolutely. Or would you like me to kind of give a synopsis before this? Um, you know, let's start with the synopsis of the whole, and then uh, from there we'll go into the uh, into Act One. Ah, I like that idea. So, 
The action takes place in two contrasting locations, the fields of Thrace in Acts 1, 2, and again in 5, and the Underworld, which is Acts 3 and 4. An instrumental toccata actually opens this piece, well, this opera, and precedes the entrance of, le, which is called Le Musica, the music of the spirit of music in the beginning. Uh, we see this prolonged for about five stanzas of verse, and then the gracious welcome to the audience when the singer announces that she can, mind you, through, see, through the sweet sounds, calm every troubled heart. She sings a further paeakin to the power of music before introducing the drama's main protagonist, Orfeo, who held the wild beast spellbound with his song. <laughs> Quite the title. Um, and I guess uh, before we just do the uh, the ideas of all of Act 1, I might as well just go ahead and tell you a little bit about each one of the characters that will be appearing inside Act 1. Of course, we have Orfeo, or Orpheus, which is our main character, our big hero, who will uh, who is voiced by a tenor or high baritone and uh, appears in Act 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, as he should. Um, then we also see uh, Eurydice, which is his uh, bride. And uh, we're only actually going to see her in Act 1 and 4, being that she is in Act 1, passes, and then again in Act 4 as he goes to rescue her. Um, we're also going to see uh, the uh, Nympha, which is a nymph, um, and as well as uh, Nymphae Pastoroi, which is uh, nymphs and shepherds. And so those are kind of the characters that we're going to see in Act 1. Um, and to begin off Act 1, uh, after the La Musica's uh, final request for silence, um, the curtain rises on Act 1 to reveal a pastoral scene. Orfeo and Eurydice enter together um, with a chorus of nymphs and shepherds uh, who act in the manner of Greek chorus, uh, com- uh, commenting on the action of both as groups and as individuals. Um, a shepherd announces that this is the couple's wedding day. The chorus responds first as a stately innovation, uh, invocation, um, come, hymen, O come. Then, in joyful dance, leave the mountains, leave the fountains. Orfeo and Eurydice sing of their love for each other after leaving with the m- most of the group for the wedding ceremony in the temple. Those left on stage sing a brief chorus, commencing uh, on how Orfeo used to be the one for whom sighs were found. Fa- uh, where food and weeping was drink, before love brought to, uh, brought him to a state of sublime happiness. So, basically, for those of you who didn't quite get that last part, the only thing that used to could make him happy was to eat and get drunk. Mm-hmm. So now he's finally found something in his life that he loves Eurydice so much that he doesn't need that anymore. He's just head over heels for her. And, well, sadly, there's a bit of a tragedy. Well, it wouldn't be much of a story if there wasn't. Right? (laughs) That's what makes the stage so dramatic. We'll see later in the opera that Eurydice dies and um, Orfeo has to go to the underworld in Acts 3 and 4 to save her. But because this recording is so old, we weren't able to break down Act 1 which also translates to kind of how it's written. This opera is written in a way that it just continuously flows. So there is no way to break it down because it's the progressive story through all of Act 1. So, here now we're going to give our listeners a chance to hear all of the El Orfeo Act 1. Now, when you listen to this, it's important to hear kind of the instrumental distinction that a lot of operas had with instruments associated to characters. In this we saw that the harpsichord and the strings and such would have been associated with um, Orfeo. When we hear the harps and the strings, we are to think of Orfeo. But whenever we hear like the harpsichord and the recorder, to think of the shepherds. Hmm. It's an interesting take on it. Well, it's just like with Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, when we see the Celeste being associated with the sh- um, the sh- Nutcracker. I had to think of which character that was. <laughs> <laughs> it just it slipped my mind. We had looked at that at Christmas, but oh, that one slipped my mind. But when listening to this, maybe you'll hear that, especially with how the instruments are used. It's important to remember at this time also that Monteverdi just gave kind of 
a basis for the musicians, but just told them to improvise within these limits. Hmm. Which really made the opera unique and that no showing of the opera ever has the same exact music. That's very interesting. But it's individualistic. <laughs> Absolutely. You can say that, well, I saw this version of the opera. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw this version. <laughs> it leaves it leaves for a lot of room for people to interpret it the way that they feel. And so as you have different organizations, different groups play it, they may have like, well, I think it should be like this. And so you could see it four or five times in four different places and hear it and get a completely different story. Right. Musically, anyway. So here it is, the Elefeo Act One by Claudio Monteverdi, as recorded in 1939.
Yo 
tuning in. You are listening to From the Concert Hall here on KUOZ 100.5 FM, community radio from University of the Ozarks here in Clarksville, Arkansas. Thank you for tuning in to From the Concert Hall. I'm Zachary Payne. And I'm Corbin Sturch. Tonight we've been looking at the Neorfio Opera by Claudia Monteverde. We've just listened to the entirety of Act One as recorded in 1939. Zach, do you want to tell us a bit about the 20th century revival of the opera? Absolutely. Um, as we had talked about earlier, um, this uh, this opera actually didn't gain precedence again until the late 18th century, early 19th century, and um, after the original composer's death. Um, however, um, a lot of its uh, a lot of its bringing back was uh, done inside the 20th century. Um, Monteverdi's music uh, began to attract interest of pioneer music historians in the late 18th to 19th century. Um, and increasingly in scholar works is where it was mostly added to. In 1881, a truncated version of La Orfeo score intended for study rather than performance was published in Berlin by Robert Etner. Um, however, in 1904, the composer uh, Vincent de Indy produced an edition of it in French. And so that's really whenever it first, and so the 20th century, really started to come back as an actual opera and not just for study, like, hey, this person did this. Now look at it, hear it, you know. Um, and so, but inside his version that he composed, um, it only had act two, a shortened act three and four. And so this one was very short. It was only kind of like a test run, like, hey, how will this do? And it did really well, actually. Um, and then uh, and then later, um, it became uh, more popular in French. And so they actually added all the acts back to it in May 2nd, 1911. And so uh, that was the beginning of, like, the uh, 20th century, whenever it really came back. Um, however, um, our recording comes from... 1939. Yep, 1939. Um, that one uh, actually was uh, for the adapted version of Monteverdi's music by uh, Giacomo Benfuti, um, given by the orchestra of La Scala Milan, uh, conducted by Fabrizio Colusio. Um, in 1949, that's whenever the recording came to the LP, which is Long Playing Records, you know, the big black disc that we have. When <laughs> You know, those, the what people call records. Um, those are LPs, the Long Playing Records. And uh, so the original recording in 1939 that was done on Beeswax was then moved to an LP, and then we got a copy of that LP, and that's what we're playing for you guys tonight. So a special thanks to the Robson Library who held this treasure in its vaults for all these years. Absolutely. This is not something that you just find easily. Right. It's really quite astonishing that we had the opportunity to find a copy of the recording from 1939 to share with you all. Absolutely. With a book of commentary on top of that. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful reading it. Uh, it really describes everything that's going on. Um, like some of the stuff you were hearing, um, with the... Whenever it was a chorus, you would be hearing the nymphs and shepherds singing together, talking about, hey, there's this awesome wedding going on. These two people are madly in love. Come see, come enjoy, celebrate with them. Don't let this go, you know, unnoticed. And then as you heard the male voice come out inside his uh, solidarity all by himself, he came out, and that was the time that we were talking about earlier, how he was singing about before this love that he had found. He only knew getting drunk eating food, you know, not really having any meaning to his life. And then this wonderful woman entered it, and then he fell in love, and then he found meaning again. And so, and then you had her response of how she loves him so much and how she can't wait to be married to him, how great this has been for both of them. And so it's a really cool love story, all in the first beginning of Act One. Yes. So I'm hoping that next week when we go through Act Two and Three, that... The opera will still catch the attention of our listeners who will continue to see the story unfold as Orpheus goes to the underworld and that lovely chorus of flutes and the harpsichords and the strings becomes this catastrophic, overbearing bit of brass to represent the underworld and everything in it. Absolutely. And it's such an interesting take on it that um, 
they would change it like and it's such a great way to show it how it was such light music before and how it was so calm and then now it's clashing brass in your face real loud nice and um i guess what would be the word obnoxious i think (laughs) yeah i get it i guess i could agree with that um and so you get that, and it really just adds tension. You can feel the tension as he lost the love of his life, the sorrow, and then the trials that he begins to face as he makes his way down into the underworld to talk to Pluto. Hades. No, it was no, Pluto no, yeah, this you're time. Right. Pluto. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm getting characters all kinds of mixed up between the operas. Oh, you're fine. I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's it's pretty <laughs> easily done. I mean, it went from Hades you know, god of the underworld to Roman mythology when it was Pluto, god of Hades, which was still the underworld, just different names. And so it can get confusing pretty easily. Right. But this this opera serves as a perfect example of how music evolved and how music is used to not only show emotion, but put you in a moment. Exactly. Um, it sets that tone. Definitely. During this time, actually, uh, this is the transitional period between the Renaissance and the Baroque. And a lot of people hear that word Baroque and not really understand that t- that period. Baroque was a time when everything was, whatever emotion was shown, was shown in super ways. Like, if someone was sad, they weren't just sad, they were depressed, ready to commit suicide. If someone was happy, they were the happiest person on the earth. You know, there was no in-between. It was extreme emotions in all ways. And so that's what the Baroque period was really about. And it showed inside the music, the art, and even inside the clothing. The clothing of the Baroque was ridiculous. (laughs) Just remember, though, folks, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. (laughs) (laughs) And being that later on we moved to the classical, you can see that this era was sort of Baroque. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I guess they thought they were going to fix it during the classical era. (laughs) Um, Evolution. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that. I I do have to say, though, Baroque is an excellent period. It had... It was really what we needed to transition into the classical period when we'll have uh, Mozart and Beethoven and Antonio Salieri. Um, A lot of the big composers that people, you know, all these names are like, oh, I know that name. Well, that's because this was a huge time in music. And so without the Renaissance and... The Baroque, I really would say that there would be no classical. It took elements of both of those. Yes, it, it really did. And it's amazing for those who've been listening to the show since its beginning. You've heard that evolution of music just in these last five weeks. Exactly. The medieval era when it was all just real simple instruments at real simple beats so people could keep inside their time, their dance, nothing flashy. This is what you had. This is music. Don't change it. We've gone from troubadours and musicians as just a person in the community that's there to professional paid musicians as part of orchestras and major events, that evolution of the arts. And then to people doing things that had never been done before, such as Talis last week when we talked about his 40-person choral piece, you know, eight eight, uh, choirs of five people. And so, I mean, just the changes inside these few hundred years is phenomenal in music, and it just keeps getting quicker. Right. Um, You know, you mentioned the 40-person chorus. Something interesting about this opera is that it engages 41 instrumentalists, but they're never playing the same instruments. They're never playing at the same time. So there's one person to an instrument. Exactly. And I think that's really interesting because as we get to the classical period, we'll see instruments overlapping instruments. We'll hear all kinds of things just run into each other, sounding like one huge mess, but it was all organized in some manner. Right. But <laughs> actually, I thought, I think one of the notes on this opera is that when it was first performed, the musicians and performers outnumbered the audience. It was in such a tight theater. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh that's pretty interesting. Right. But th- this week looking at the first bit of this Leorfia opera has just been amazing. I can't wait for next Tuesday when we get to look at acts 2 and 3 and the Tuesday after that when we look at or maybe even next Thursday, I don't know, depending mm-hmm. on how our scheduling works out when we look at acts 4 and 5. Absolutely. Finish this opera and really let Monteverdi go out with a bang as we continue through the Baroque. But this has been a great show tonight looking at the opera. For those of you who would like to 
follow us and figure out what we do through the week on our days off from the show, if that is such a thing, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash from the concert hall. And through that, you can see a barrage of information about the show, find out anything you want to know about the show. We've even updated a list of profile pictures for everyone on the cast. So if you think you might know our voice on the streets, now you can know our face too. <laughs> Radio's <laughs> finally got a face. Absolutely. Uh, we're also on Twitter at FTCH underscore KUOZ and on Instagram at KUOZ Concert Hall. Now, one exciting development this week is that after tonight, you'll be able to find our podcast of the show on a website called podomatic.com. All you've got to do is search for From the Concert Hall, and you'll find us under Arts and Entertainment. That sounds awesome. Doesn't it, though? (laughs) And so if there's any shows that you enjoyed particularly, uh, anything that was like, oh, I really love the music from that one, please go back, listen to them. Or if someone's like, hey, uh, you know, this is a really awesome show. I want you to listen to it. I've been listening to it for the past few weeks. Go back and show them what they've been missing. Right. If you can't catch us live or catch us when we replay, because it's still late at night, I think, when we replay, come catch us on the podcast, and you can listen to us anytime, anywhere, at your own convenience. Absolutely. Even start us and stop us over. <laughs> I th- That didn't make sense. <laughs> no, no, I can see it. Like, wait, what'd they say? Rewind. <laughs> yeah, figure out what that phrase was supposed to be. <laughs> but no. before we let you go tonight, I want to remind everyone that the Clarksville Lions Club has a pancake breakfast happening on Tuesday, March 31st at the Clarksville First United Methodist Church. They'll start serving at 6.30 in the morning and go through 12.30 at night. Right now, the cost is $5 per person or $3 for children 12 and under. Now, this is all you can eat, folks. It's well worth that $5 or that $3. Now, if you're a college student like us, it's... 37 o'clock in the morning, you've got a class at 7.45.8. You don't want to drive all the way to the church or go out in the cold. If you and your buddies can get together and get an order of over six or more, or anyone in the community, you can call 479-979-2260 and they'll deliver. So orders of six or more and they'll deliver. Again, that number is 479-979-2260 where you can find out more information about this pancake breakfast. A reminder that this week, we've also got Breach Log 15 on display in the art gallery. That's by artist Courtney Leonard. It'll be on display for till about March 20th. So you can go and catch it in the gallery there. If you listened to the gallery opening yesterday, she was there. It was great to sit and talk with her. And then also tonight, she gave a waste presentation, which I've heard was very invigorating. And then Tuesday, I'm I'm sorry, today is Tuesday, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Oh, it's been a long week already. (laughs) But Thursday, you can tune into the show, and we will have special guest artist, the Reverend Dr. Jack Haber, Presbyterian artist, magazine editor, pastor, and what some have called one of the leading voices in American Presbyterianism here on the show. He'll be here to continue his waste speech over God and ethics. And we're going to invite call-ins, give people a chance to hear more about what he has to say and ask him yourself if you didn't get enough of it at the waste presentation. So that'll be Thursday night at 9 here on the show. Or you can catch his actual waste speaking event at 7 o'clock here at the University of the Ozarks at Baldor Auditorium, which is in the business building. Again, that's 7 o'clock in the business building in Baldor Auditorium, which is the first room you'll see when you walk into the building. Absolutely. But big big room, impossible to miss. Come see him. He has a lot of really interesting ideas, a lot of really good things to talk about. Right. So, thank you. This has been a, another great show from the concert hall. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us all the feedback you've given us. It's because of you that we do this show. Absolutely. We really appreciate all your support and everything that you do for us just by listening in. Right. You make it all worthwhile. Now, tonight to send you off, we have Fall Slow Tears, a Lenten piece to help you all 
and finding the beauty of Lent, this time of giving up and growing in our own faith. So here it is, false slow tears, good night and thank you. Christ, Christ, Christ.